Welcome to the Edge Talk Radio Network, your weekly source for information, empowerment, and connection. The Edge Magazine and its advertisers bring you inspired interviews and conversation on learning and healing, on our sacred journey, and on topics that expand beyond time and space. Now, welcome today's host. Welcome to the March 5th edition of Learning Well on Edge Blog Talk Radio. My name is Elise Markham-Johns, and I'm delighted that you've joined us for this evening's programming. The Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale Community College in Minneapolis, Minnesota, brings you Learning Well the first Tuesday of each month, and we want to thank them so much for their continuing sponsorship. As many of you know, each month we interview leaders in the field of integrative and holistic health, and many of these leaders are really transforming the world of health and wellness. And tonight's guest is certainly no exception. In just a few moments, I'll introduce Dr. Patrick Hannaway, who is a pioneer in the field of functional medicine, a researcher, and physician. He was at the forefront of developing the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine, which puts nutrition and natural therapeutics at the center of the treatment equation rather than on the margins. And by the way, the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine has over roughly 2,000 people on its waiting list. One of the reasons I'm also so glad that Dr. Hanaway can be with us this evening is that it's always our hope that the information and ideas you hear on Learning Well will not only enhance your health, career, and relationships, but also provide practical tools that can benefit you both personally and professionally, and provide tools and ideas that you can share with those who are important to you, your friends, family, loved ones, clients, or patients. And as I mentioned at the top of the program, our sponsor for Learning Well is the Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale Community College in Minneapolis, Minnesota. There are some great classes coming up at Normandale, so before introducing Dr. Hanaway, I'd like to take just a few moments to let you know about a few of them that I thought you might find particularly interesting. First of all, on Saturday, March 16th from 8 to 4, there's a class offered on Reiki Energy Therapy, which is a Level 1 certificate program, and this course will prepare participants to become certified as a Reiki Energy Therapy practitioner. It will offer a simple, natural, and safe method of therapy that you uses life force energy transmitted through a practitioner's hands for physical pain reduction and profound relaxation. Reiki energy therapy sessions are hands-on, fully clothed touch therapy approach. On Monday, March 18th and the 25th, from 6.30 to 9, there will be a holistic nutrition certificate class, which is titled Traditional Diets and the Modern American Diet. This is a two-part class, which will focus on the hunter-forager diets of indigenous peoples compared to the modern American diet and federal dietary recommendations. The seven major nutrient deficiencies of the modern American diet will also be reviewed. And there will be a class on herbalism, the development, forms, and energetics of herbal therapy, and part one will be offered on Wednesday, March 20th from 6.30 to 9 p.m. This course will cover how herbal therapy developed, the major herbal systems of the world, and how they compare and differ. Class members will learn how herbalists from these various systems choose particular herbs for certain situations. There will be additional topics which will include energetic aspects of herbs, for example, herbs which are warming, cooling, drying, or moistening, how they impact different types of people and conditions and some common assessment techniques used by herbalists. A course titled Energy Medicine, Energy Healing will be held on Saturday, March 23rd from 9 to 4. This energy work and play day is dedicated to consciously accessing information, vibration, and the combination of the two for diagnosis, healing, divination, and problem-solving. Topics and techniques to be covered include energy assessment, clearing, balancing, and opening to heal self and others, as well as the two main types of healing concerns, autoimmune and trauma. And on Tuesday, March 26th, from 6 to 9 p.m., there will be a workshop titled Business Boot Camp for Holistic Practitioners. This workshop will cover a step-by-step process on starting a business, business types, laws, taxes, insurance, marketing, financing, and business strategies. Taking the right steps now will let practitioners concentrate on the fun part, helping improve their clients' health and wellness. 
If you would like information about these or any other classes and programs at Normandale Community College's Integrative Health Education Center, we encourage you to call 952-358-8343, or you can simply email Normandale at normandale.edu forward slash CE. Well, I must say that for over a year, I wanted to bring you a program specifically focusing on functional medicine, and I'm so delighted to have as our guest tonight a pioneer and expert in this field, Dr. Patrick Hannaway. Dr. Hannaway is a physician. He's spoken internationally on the subjects of nutrition, gastroenterology, microbiome, endocrinology, and systems holistic medicine in over 1,000 CME-accredited clinician workshops. He has expertise in the clinical application of nutritional biochemistry with emphases on digestive disease, nutrition, and wellness. He offers system medicine consultations for patients, physicians, and corporations to improve overall health status. Dr. Hannaway currently works as faculty for the Institute for Functional Medicine, teaching around the world and training new faculty members. He served as the first medical director of the Center for Functional Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic from 2014 to 2017, which grew from two to 20 clinicians in just three years. In 2019, he completed his term as a research director at the Center for Functional Medicine, where he has focused on the use of patient-reported outcomes measures and total cost of care to assess the value of healthcare delivery. Dr. Hannaway is a fellow of the American Academy of Family Physicians and is past president of the American Board of Integrative Holistic Medicine, served on the executive committee of the American Board of Integrative Medicine, and he's on the editorial boards of multiple journals in integrative medicine. He's a graduate of the University of Wisconsin in molecular biology and earned his doctorate of medicine from Washington University's School of Medicine. In addition, after years of training, Dr. Hannaway has been initiated as a traditional healer by the Wiraki people of Sierra Madres Occidental in Mexico, and I'm sure I did not pronounce that correctly. Dr. Hannaway, what a pleasure it is having you with us this evening. Thank you so much, and how do you pronounce that correctly? Thank you so much, Elise. The Wirarica, uh, the ah. Huichol, is the, is the Spanish name uh, of the indigenous people who live in the Sierra Madres. Um. <laughs> Thank you. I, I even looked up how to pronounce it, and so <laughs> I still didn't get it, so I appreciate that. Dr. Hannaway, first of all, can you tell us what exactly is functional medicine for those who are not familiar with the term? Well, functional medicine is a, a term that has been developed over the past 20-plus years that is looking at a patient-centered uh, systems medicine approach. So we look at the, at the systems of different functions within the body. In this approach, we're able to individualize or personalize our diagnostic assessment and our treatment approaches by really listening to the story of what's going on for the individual and focus on the root causes. So by, by listening to the story and looking at what are the predisposing factors, what are the, the precipitating factors at the time where illness may begin, what are, the, what are the perpetuating factors that go on, it allows us to be able to personalize treatment for that individual. Again, with the focus on the, the root cause. Um, I might say that when we look at function, we, we know that within a family or a city or a state, and so is true within our body, in our organs, and in the, in the individual cells, that we need to get nutrients. We need to get food. We need to get rid of that which we don't want or need. We need to produce energy and we need to uh, be able to have an immune or defense system that works to help take care of things and, and repair what's damaged. We need a communications network and a transportation network and an infrastructure. Those are the functions that we talk about with functional medicine. And, and it, do you differentiate between functional medicine and integrative medicine? Can those terms be used interchangeably? 
Well, think about uh, functional medicine as an operating system. It helps you to understand how to think through the problem. Integrative medicine would then rely upon, well, what are the tools that I may use? So integrative medicine uh, is, to me, the grab bag of many different kinds of modalities. I may use acupuncture and moxibustion. I may use herbs. I may use mind-body therapies. I may use supplements. I'm, I'm going to be using nutrition. So it's all of those factors that we consider under this broad umbrella of integrative medicine that are, are really modalities, and functional medicine is the operating system of how to think through the problem. Okay, thank you. That's really helpful. Well, you came from a traditional medical background, so I'm curious about your journey toward the field of functional medicine. How and when did that start to happen for you? Hmm. Mine is sort of an unusual story because, um, you know, many people, there have been health crises or different things that have, have led them to find this. But for me, um, when I went to medical school, for some reason, I thought that I was going to be learning about how to optimize health and well-being. But that's not what medical school was. Medical school is about disease and understanding disease and how to treat disease. But I continued to ask the question, feeling like if we look at indigenous or traditional healing systems like Ayurveda or traditional Chinese medicine, they looked at the whole person you know, from illness to wellness and how to move along that continuum. And Western medicine didn't have that same kind of approach. So I asked questions about, about prevention and about lifestyle and how do we move in this way. And that was my interest early on. And in my first year of medical school, I picked up a book that had just been written by Dr. Jeffrey Bland, who's kind of the father of functional medicine, you know, talking about um, uh, clinical applications of nutrition. And it helped me to see that the biochemistry that I was learning was really about nutrition. It was about macronutrients, fats, proteins, and carbs, and about micronutrients, minerals, vitamins, and how they work together in metabolism and biochemistry. And understanding that, and taking that then towards hormones and other kinds of body systems, was an approach that I took as I followed through the becoming a, a family physician. I thought about quitting, but I thought if I'm an MD doing this and having an approach that focuses on a broader view, that I may be able to have an impact on, on medicine in that way. And that's, uh, it's worked out that way. It certainly has. And you have said, we sit at the edge of a tsunami in healthcare. Could you tell us a little bit about what you mean by this? Well, I was um, just uh, noting a couple days ago that uh, in 10 years, in 2029, um, the majority of people in China, for example, will be over the age of 60. Um, so as we see the aging of the population, as we look in the United States where um, you know, 50% of all adults have at least one chronic disease, 25% have two or more, uh, 86% of all of our health care costs are caused by chronic disease, and it continues to increase, that we cannot continue to focus on disease care. We have to begin to focus earlier on, upstream, using approaches that include lifestyle medicine, uh, nutrition, uh, sleep, um, stress reduction, exercise and movement, meaning and purpose in our lives to be able to deal with these issues at a much earlier level uh, where it will cost much less for the intervention and have a much longer lasting effect. It's really interesting to think about how how could this be incorporated at an earlier level? Is it parents that, that need to be familiar? Is it school systems? <laughs> it's interesting to think about how that could happen. Um, do you see it being disseminated in any particular way to help the situation in this country with health care? Mm -hmm. Well, as you've said, there's so many different ways, and, and my wife, who's a, a family physician who you know, delivered babies for over 20 years and, and focuses on parenting as a functional medicine doctor, would love to uh, hear you say that, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's an area uh, to grow. But where we see 
And interestingly, even with our work at the Cleveland Clinic, is that beginning to focus on shared medical appointments and group visits that empower groups of individuals to support each other in the process uh, and being more outwardly facing, not just the one-on-one doctor-patient visit, but rather, uh, and even with additional staff as we do with a nutritionist and a coach, but actually having people working together to be able to support each other in the process of healing. This, to me, is where the greatest opportunity lies wow. in terms of, of, of creating a shift uh, overall in our healthcare system. That's really exciting. I mean, just to think about the community building and, I mean, so many, I've been reading so much lately about how many people feel lonely and isolated despite, you know, being around other people. I mean, what an interesting thing to approach it that way. Exactly. Exactly. Isolation may be the the biggest disease of all. Uh, And you worry about, at least I do, (laughs) technology and you know the ongoing evolution of technology and what that's going to mean for that very issue. But anyway, that's a whole other topic. (laughs) And in one of your other presentations, you said that you felt that functional medicine has reached a tipping point. Uh, Please tell us more about your thoughts on this. Is this sort of as a result of your work at the Cleveland Clinic, what you saw there? We see it there. We see that there's a willingness of a major academic medical center to be begin to innovate in this way, to say, hey, are there different ways to be able to do this? That's certainly one uh, in the arena of integrative medicine. We now see um, more than 60 academic medical centers uh, that include integrative medicine in their in their focal point. And, and we see that some of the standard bearers of, of Western medicine are, are now in ways feeling threatened uh, by this new consideration and this new approach, um, which is is indicating that you know we've kind of um, poked the bear. We, we're, we're making an impact, and that impact and that focal point is really on outcomes, improving outcomes, and decreasing overall costs for individuals. So that that tipping point is that more and more people are aware. Uh, if one goes to ifm.org to the Institute for Functional Medicine, ifm.org, to look for find a practitioner. We've got over 1.5 million people every year looking for practitioners, over 1,000 uh, certified practitioners uh, across the country. So, you know, we're, we're at a point where this is becoming a, a major conversation point in many different uh, academic settings as well as with insurers and providers of, of health care. So that's where I talk about it as a tipping point. The awareness is, is now here. So what is the process? Do you, uh, how do you move into the area of functional medicine if, you're, if you've received a medical degree? Is there a certification process separately for functional medicine practitioners? There is, there is. So anyone who is able to act as a clinician by uh, a state licensure, so that will include um, um, physicians, nurse practitioners, physician's assistants, uh, acupuncturists, chiropractors, anyone who's clinically able to you know, see and work with patients can move through the, the process of um, becoming a certified functional medicine practitioner, uh, a program that IFM has put together, you know, which includes uh, coursework and uh, a testing process as well as uh, going through case studies and demonstrating proficiency in the, in the content and the knowledge base and the ability to apply it. So that's what the functional medicine certification is. Uh, as I said, there are over a 1,000 uh, practitioners who have done that with uh, uh, new programs beginning every year to help people move along that pathway, not only in the United States but internationally. So that's the process of someone's able to do that uh, if they're interested in, in learning and applying functional medicine in practice. I've heard you talk about about both the functional medicine matrix and the functional medicine tree. Could you talk Mm -hmm. about those two different segments? Sure. So the the tree is used as a 
as a metaphor, you know, for looking at if we look out at the, the the branches and the leaves on the tree, which would be similar to the various kinds of specialties in medicine, the branches of medicine, whether it's gastroenterology or pulmonology or neurology, if we focus out there on symptoms as our as our Western medicine colleagues do, the primary focus is on how do we reduce the symptoms. So we have medicines that are focused on being antihypertensive, antibiotic, uh, uh, antidepressant. We're trying to make the symptoms go away, which would be not dissimilar from you know, pruning the tree where there's a disease activity that's going on. But what we do in functional medicine is we look at the trunk of what's going on, which are those functions that I talked about, are the functions working properly, and we look at the roots. And when we look at the roots, we think about, well, what are intrinsic root causes uh, that would be, uh, for example, as I mentioned earlier, nutrition, sleep, movement, stress, meaning, and purpose in our lives. Those are our intrinsic root causes, and we listen to the patient's story to find out well, where where's the imbalance in, in you at this point in time by saying, you know, what are the predisposing factors and what was the precipitating factor and what is perpetuating the problem. And there are also some extrinsic uh, factors, as we, as we might see in a tree, that, that could be attacks on the, uh, its ability to maintain balance. And those could be from antigens and allergens in the environment, from toxins that are present, whether it's organotoxins or heavy metal toxins or other kinds of, you know, many different kinds of toxins that are present, or are from infections. So those would be extrinsic causes, and we look at the, at the root causes for an individual by listening to their story. So that's what the tree is. Now, uh, we take that information as we're gathering it, and we put it into an operating system that begins to look at function and say, oh, my, I'm seeing that there's a lot of issues that are going on with, you know, energy production and and, and uh, uh, some cognitive issues that are going on. The brain uses the most energy of any part of the body or some fatigue issues that are going on. And I say, I really want to focus here on what's happening with the mitochondria to be able to begin to leverage and move forward. So we use the, the matrix, which is the interrelationship of these functions the ones I mentioned, so that is gathering nutrients, getting rid of what you don't need, defense and repair, energy production, transportation, communication, and infrastructure. We look at those to be able to leverage and say, what's the, what's the first thing that I need to do to help this person move towards health and well-being? And that's, and that's what the, the process is of practicing functional medicine. You talk about root causes, which obviously is is so key. I'm just curious, from the work you've done with literally hundreds of patients, is there any one root cause that you sort of would highlight as something that you've seen over and over again? You know, obviously every individual case is different, but is there one thing that if you could just say, (laughs) please do this or pay attention to this, what would that be? Well, I'd say there's two. And what's fascinating is that they're the two that I first learned about in in medical school and focused on and sort of got lost in and amongst everything else uh, over time. And one is nutrition and that the nutrition, the foods that we eat form every cell and every component of every cell in our body. So the nutrition is is premier. It has to be focused on and dealt with. And there are different therapeutic nutritional approaches as well as different maintenance approaches. So nutrition and dealing with stress. And I highlight that again because I just continue to see so much sympathetic overdrive in our culture where we're in the go, go, go mode and we don't actually allow for the rest and recovery to occur. Those two things are things that I work with with every single patient. And then and then and then I begin to individualize obviously what the approach is for dealing with stress, what the approach is with diet and bring in those other elements of function that I mentioned earlier. And going back to dealing with with stress for just a moment. Is there obviously there are a whole lot of different approaches you can take with that. Is there any one that you see people being most receptive to? Just out of curiosity. 
Mm, it's a it's an interesting question because it really depends upon where people are at in terms yeah. of that spiral for change. You know, some people pre-contemplative. You know, you know, oh, I haven't really thought about that. Some people are contemplative. Some people are preparing. Some people are in action phase and have tried different things. Um, you know, so where the focus is is how to be able to begin to create balance. I look for tools that allow for some kind of biofeedback to occur. And I also listen to what are the values of an individual. For some people, sitting in prayer can do that. For some people, sitting contemplatively knitting can do that. For some people, it's meditation. For some people, it's using a biofeedback tool that looks at heart rate variability biofeedback or or even a, uh, um, uh, a brainwave EEG biofeedback tool called Muse. And I use all of these in practice. I work to find where is this person at? Sometimes it's just getting someone to be able to go out and walk in nature for 20 minutes every day. You know, it, So I try to meet them where they're at to begin to shift the pattern to slow down and, and, and have better mechanisms for dealing with those stresses that are inherent in our lives, right? It's not about avoiding the stress, as Celia said. It's about, it's about working with the stress in a way that is beneficial. Use stress instead of distress. It, it, that's really funny because just before you said walking in nature, that's exactly what I was thinking about. <laughs> I was thinking about the fact that if no matter where I am in, in my emotional well-being, if I take a walk, it just totally transforms my way of thinking. And that's when I come up with my best ideas for things as well. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's a fascinating process. And sometimes I have to force myself to remember it and do it, but it can really make such a difference. Well, one of the other things you've talked about is working with a patient by looking at his or her timeline. Can you talk a little bit about that process? So, yeah, sure. The the timeline is really about how we listen to someone's story and put it together and then offer it back to them to say, this is what I've heard is the progression of what's happened in your life. So I'll ask questions that will include, you know, when was the last time you felt well? Or, or I'll I'll notice that there's there's some you know grouping of of some imbalance or disease that's happening in their teens but then in their 20s they've got no problems at all and then something starts up again in their 30s and i want to know what were you doing in your 20s like how did things shift and change and and what was the what was the tipping point again to use that phrase but what was the precipitating factor you know that led to this, you know, and, and those stories can go anywhere from, you know, I was sitting in my house and they were pu- putting, you know, chlorohexane on my roof to I traveled to a third world country and and got an infection to, you know, someone died or I lost my job. And you know, all those different factors, uh, be, by listening to the timeline, help me to then share back, this is what I hear as the story of your life and where we're going to focus. And when the individual client or patient feels heard. Now, we, we see that the average time a patient gets to talk is about 15 seconds before they're interrupted. You know, but in my, my intake, you know, I have them fill out a 600-question questionnaire that I read beforehand and get their history, and then I spend two hours talking to them. So the depth of understanding of what's happening in their life and them feeling heard helps to um, accentuate the therapeutic relationship and helps people to feel heard. So then we can move forward from there. And also it uncovers jewels that, you know, one would never guess. Hmm. I can't imagine how different that must feel for most people to have that kind of experience with a physician. It just it just doesn't happen. And I'm sure that's a wonderful way to start the healing process is just to have that kind of support and uh, chance to be heard. And it's certainly an important part of the healing process, yes. And one of the things that I understand is is interesting that functional medicine doctors look at are what's called antecedents. Uh, and one of the examples you've used is the 1943 hunger winter in the Netherlands. Uh, can you, for the people who aren't familiar with that and what that whole process looks like, can you talk a little bit about that as well? 
Um, sure. Yeah, it was in 44 and 45, actually, and it was uh, that the, the German-occupied Netherlands at that time, the Germans put a blockade on, on food shipments from the farm towns, and there were about 4.5 million people who were affected, about 18,000 people who, who died. Uh, but during that time, uh, the women who were pregnant, we found that the children who were born were smaller. Um, we found that they had uh, additional chronic diseases that happened because the the, the, the fetuses, if you will, uh, they were they were malnourished at that point in time. An interesting part about it is that not only were the children who were born that period of time affected by an increase in chronic diseases from the famine, but also their children. So the children's children were affected, which is an indication of the epigenetic signaling that goes generation to generation, where we're affected by what's happened to our parents and our grandparents, as, uh, which turns on and turns off specific genes which can put us at risk. So this is an indication of a predisposing factor or an antecedent. So we can look at what happened prenatally, we also want to ask the question, well, what's happened generationally? And this is independent of the genome, of what your genetic predisposition is. This is epigenetics, epi, above the genes, of what's turning on and turning off the genes, which we see is also affected by the turning on and turning off of genes is going to be affected, as we've seen from you know, Dr. Randy Jertle's work and others, uh, that toxins, uh, exposure to BP, PA uh, can turn on genes, uh, exposure to uh, the right amounts of, of B vitamins and, and support can turn off genes. Um, so we, we have the ability uh, to be able to look at, well, what are the predisposing factors for disease that's going on? And this is an important part of our, of our overall consideration where we're really looking at you know, the family history, the genomics, the generational aspects of what went on, and listening to the, the timeline of someone's story. That's so interesting. So can the actual, if someone's gone through generational trauma and if that's been passed on, can those genes be turned off by changing lifestyle? Is, is, there, is there evidence for that? The, that's a great question, and, and specific human evidence, I would say no. There are, there are mouse models where that has been able to be shifted, and there have been abilities to be able to uh, turn off that transgenerational uh, trauma or transgenerational effect that's gone on from nutrient deficiencies, et cetera, you know, by applying the right types of nutrition and dealing with the stressors that are, that are going on. That's an area called sociogenomics uh, that Dr. Uh, Stephen Cole at UCLA and others are really focusing on of how to be able to look at, at modifying those specific triggers uh, um, transgenerationally. Wow, that's, that's a whole fascinating area. Um, there is also, there are a number of things that you mentioned that can cause depression and many of us would probably not be aware of some of these causes. And I, I wonder if you could share some of these with our listeners as well. Well, I, I could first go through and just, and when we talk about root causes, I'm going to say again, intrinsic root causes that are going to be lifestyle oriented, that are going to be nutrition, sleep, movement, stress, uh, meaning and purpose in our lives, and extrinsic root, fact, root causes uh, that can deal with antigens from the environment, uh, toxins, and infections. So when I start to talk about depression, for example, I can say, well, we've seen depression that can be caused by, uh, by wheat, um, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, as well as celiac disease. We can see it from a lack of light. We call this seasonal affective disorder. Uh, we see a, a decreases in vitamin D are associated with depression. Inflammation in the brain is associated with inflammation. Obviously, other dietary factors, eating, a, eating foods that are highly processed, increasing the amounts of sugar, increases the risk of depression. Having exposure to toxins like mercury, uh, 
uh, for example, or organotoxins can increase the risk of depression that's going on. Alterations in the microbiome and the gut-brain connection uh, that goes on. We see that there's a, a psycho-emotional impact that's, that's led by our biggest sensing organ that we have, which is the microbiome, the, the bacteria that are present in our gut that are sending signals to our brain, and they're sending signals to an area called the insular cortex that acts as the overall view and integrates with our emotions and helps to determine how we feel. So that, that kind of effect, a, a new one. And then certainly other infections uh, that have been associated with uh, depression as well. So I, I'm giving many different examples there. And so if we have someone who is, is depressed, we want to find out, well, why? Is, are, what is the driver? What is the precipitating factor? And what are the predisposing things and the perpetuating factors that are involved in that? Because we see that antidepressants for mild to moderate depression, and here we're talking about the classic antidepressants, you know, um, such as the SSRIs and SNRIs and tricyclic antidepressants, or even St. John's Ward, are really not effective for mild to moderate depression. Now, with severe depression, you need those. They're, they're great tools as bridges, um, but we want to find out for mild to moderate depression, well, what's the driving factor that's going on and how do we individualize our treatment for that person? And I've heard varying statistics on this, and I'm just curious on what would sort of be the, the latest thinking on this, and that is what percentage of our health is derived from our genetic composition as opposed to lifestyle? Hmm. Yeah, the, well, there are different different numbers that have been thrown about. The, sort of the highest number that I've seen in looking at cancers uh, with a specific subset of cancers is as high as 30% is related to uh, genetic factors and 70% is related to environmental factors. Others would say uh, that number is closer to 15 and 85% in terms of of where that plays out, but the thing that I like to highlight and within functional medicine we highlight is it's about, well, how do we bathe our genes, whatever they are, in the right environment? Because we can, we can use our environment, the inputs, to overcome bad genes, and we can use the environment to be able to negate the effect of a good set of genes. Although there is a difference, so certain people are going to have uh, a, a genetic predisposition that is going to put them at higher risk, and they could, may never be able to get to some optimum potential that someone with a, a great set of, of, uh, of genes can deal with. But if we think about it just like blackjack, you know, it's like it's how you play the cards you're dealt that's key. I want to go back a little bit, if we can, to the Cleveland Clinic. We touched on a little bit earlier, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. you were uh, helped launch the, the program of functional medicine, the Cleveland Clinic. Um, mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about when the department was created, uh, how it came about, and what the patient response was throughout the time sure. that you were there? Sure. Well, well, kudos have to go to uh, uh, Dr. Mark Hyman uh, and Dr. Toby Cosgrove. Dr. Cosgrove was the CEO of the Cleveland Clinic at the time, and then Dr. Hyman, uh, who's well-known in functional medicine and for much of his lecturing, teaching, and his center in, um, in the Berkshires in Lenox, Massachusetts, Ultra Wellness Center. He then brought in the Institute for Functional Medicine to help with the process of, of recruiting and educating and setting up. I was working with IFM at that point in time in 2014, and I was skeptical. I, I said, this isn't really going to happen. This is a big idea. Um, but as it came closer to reality, I was approached um, you know, by Dr. Hyman, Dr. Jeff Bland, who I mentioned, and Dr. Cosgrove to act as the first medical director, um, which I, I did. I thought it would be a, a, a part-time job, and I would just help kind of get the ball rolling. But uh, very soon it became clear that it was a it was a more than a full-time job, and uh, we grew very quickly. Um, 
It's been noted that uh, the first day we opened on October 2nd, 2014, you know, with uh, with one doctor and one nutritionist and one nurse, we thought that we would have three months of time to kind of get everything together, and we were full from day one. And and by the, the spring of that year, we were hiring more doctors to be able to meet the, the ever-growing waiting list that we had there that you mentioned earlier. And as we added more doctors and more uh, nurse practitioners and PAs and nutritionists and health coaches, uh, the waiting list continued to grow. We were then blessed to be able, by the by the clinic and Dr. Cosgrove, to move into a, uh, a state-of-the-art uh, 17,000 square foot space right in the in the heart of, of the main campus of the Cleveland Clinic, which was designed specifically for our needs. And uh, we've been uh, seeing patients there since uh, the beginning of 2017. And can you talk a little bit about the operating system at the Cleveland Clinic? And also, I'm very curious about the path for change for patients, which I'm sure requires a lot of behavior change and coaching, and I'm curious what part uh, did this play in the approach that the Cleveland Clinic took as well? Yeah. Um, I can focus on the second question. I'm not quite sure what you mean by operating system, Elise, at the Cleveland Go ahead. Clinic. You can focus on the second part. <laughs> okay. All right. So... Um, what we what we did initially was uh, we had the um, the the clinician visit, so that would be usually a physician or a, a um, so-called mid-level a nurse practitioner or uh, an advanced practice uh, um, uh, practitioner. Uh, physician's assistant or nurse practitioner, seeing the, the patients initially for an hour and then working with a nutritionist for an hour. Um, we set it up so that for every hour of of clinician time, there was an hour of nutritionist time associated with it. And then we brought coaching into it as well, coaching uh, which was really a, a loss leader. We we weren't billing for the coaching, but we knew that we had to have it to be part of working with the, the important aspect that you've highlighted around behavior change, You know, being able to help uh, the patients be able to move through uh, what the process was that was going on that we were asking of them, uh, particularly in relationship to nutrition. Uh, stress reduction, other aspects that were important, uh, including you know sleep and exercise, um, to help them to be able to set set goals, smart goals for themselves, so they could move through the process. One of the things that we also then leveraged was the. Institute for Functional Medicine (IFM) uh, created a, a relationship with. Uh, a partner uh, that is the uh, Functional Medicine Coaching Academy, and they were um, putting out coaches who were trained in functional medicine, and we worked with those coaches as part of the overall process so that they were very uh, clearly understanding of the functional medicine operating system and approach, uh, the nutritional tools that we would use, uh, the stress reduction approaches that we would use, and so we worked together as a team. That was how we moved forward. And while that continues to happen, we've also morphed that model um, to focus as well on shared medical appointments, groups of people with similar kinds of problems coming together, 10 or 12 patients coming together every week uh, for 10 weeks to touch base with the doctor a few times, making sure that things are, are moving okay, maybe getting a few supplements and understanding the functional medicine model, but working primarily with nutritionists and coaches and behavior change um, and, and behavior therapists to be able to modify their behavior, working with each other in a closed Facebook group that would help them to find support for each other in the process. And interestingly, uh, we're doing research on this at this point in time, but our, our preliminary numbers show that the patients who see the doctors less but work together in groups actually do better uh, long term than the patients who are, who are trying to do it all themselves. So were the groups a combination of in-person groups as well as Facebook? Uh, was there a phone component as well? Or 
Just uh, curious no, how the one one to well, I mean, there's different models that are emerging now from there. But as it was set up, the functioning for life program, it's called. Uh, it would be um, ten weekly sessions, or a weekly session for ten weeks for one to two hours period of time, working with the nutritionist, the behavioral therapist, and on three or four different occasions, seeing the physician for a brief period of time. Uh, each each individual person, and then they would interact together uh, in the in the closed Facebook group in between times, which was moderated by one of our coaches. Okay, you also launched clinical trials uh, at the Cleveland Clinic, which I assume are ongoing. Can you talk a little bit about those as well? Yeah, absolutely. So we have an array of different kinds of clinical trials. It was part of the agreement that uh, that Dr. Hyman made with Dr. Cosgrove right up front, and uh, the Cleveland Clinic helped to fund several uh, randomized controlled trials looking at uh, patients with uh, severe asthma uh, and taking those patients, and they would either be seen in the asthma center or the asthma center plus functional medicine. Uh, another study was done with type 2 diabetics who were on insulin, and they would be seen either by the endocrinology at the Cleveland Clinic or endocrinology plus functional medicine uh, with the goal of getting them off of insulin. Both of those trials are, are ongoing and enrolling patients. Uh, we expect to be done with them by the end of this year, and uh, we look forward to you know, unmasking. Those are randomized trials, so um, we don't know the exact uh, results of those yet. We've done other trials retrospectively looking at rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis in comparison with the, with the uh, rheumatology division um, of, the, of the Cleveland clinic. We've done trials that have looked at patient-reported outcomes measures, uh, comparing with uh, internal medicine and family medicine in the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, we're also um, finishing up uh, a trial that's looking at the cost of care, uh, looking at uh, patients who have a particular kind of insurance, and we've gathered that information comparing patients who have seen us and to a similar cohort of patients who look just like them who did not see us with similar kinds of issues and being able to look at what is the difference in the cost of care when, when people have had that intensive interaction with functional medicine uh, and then how they do over the two years period of time after that. So these are all different data? trials. Oh, excuse me. I oh. <laughs> wondered if there's um, any preliminary uh, data you can share. Yeah. Well, you know, we um, we saw initially, and uh, it's uh, shown on the on the Institute for Functional Medicine website. You know that there is, you know, both an improvement in the overall outcomes and a a decrease in the in the cost of care. Initially, uh, that is not in a, a randomized group. That is just looking at at beginning, like what we call pre-post. We take someone who comes in and how they did over time, their symptoms improve, they feel better, and their cost of care decreased over that period of time while they saw us. The, the trials will actually have a control group comparison uh, so that we can be sure that we're not just, uh, as they say, creaming the crop, uh, but really comparing them to a similar group of people and, and looking at what their costs are over time. So we're looking forward to uh, completing that data analysis that's in the process right now. I can't help but think that's going to have a huge impact on how other institutions are perhaps looking at this kind of care. And there are some other major medical facilities that, that we were talking before the show that you mentioned have functional medicine departments or planning to develop. And can you tell us a little bit about what institutions are going that direction? Well, we've had um, much interest from uh, institutions both in the United States and around the world who have come to visit and learn, you know, how we how we put things together. Um, we've seen that uh, Henry Ford Health System in uh, in Michigan is working has been developed has developed their own functional medicine uh, center there. Uh, the integrative medicine. Um, 
program at Mayo Clinic, uh, which is now being led by Dr. Adam Perlman, is going to include a, a greater focus on functional medicine and what they do. And part of what we're trying to uh, promote as these new centers emerge is the use of looking at uh, patient-reported outcomes measures, outcomes measures, so that we can begin to have a conversation of how are our patients doing better, um, using that as the focal point rather than looking at one individual disease. Is your hypertension better? You know, we can use a medicine to get your hypertension better, uh, but does it actually help overall with your your diabetes and your overall functioning in life, or um, are there other other concerns that aren't being dealt with? And so we're we're focused really on, on outcomes as the principal tool to be able to uh, share across the healthcare systems and with, um, and especially with employers. You know, this is where the greatest opportunity for change is: is that the employers want their employees to be healthier, and so and they're very interested in can they cut their health healthcare costs and improve sure. the overall health and well-being of their employees. And so this is where I think the greatest opportunities are for being able to apply the functional medicine model, especially in the sickest subset of people, for example, those patients with autoimmune disease who are on uh, expensive biologic medicines. We know that in, for employers, 5% of their employees comprise 50% of their costs. So if we can help them with that 5% of their employees um, you know, by, by creating the opportunities for uh, behavior change and looking at root causes, you know, that's where the greatest opportunity for functional medicine is at this point in time. Interesting. Well, I can't help but think that there are a number of people listening who are thinking, so, okay, I want to give this a shot. How do I go about finding a functional medicine doctor? What, what can you guide them to? Well, I, I mentioned earlier the website ifm.org, mm -hmm. so that's the the letters for the Institute for Functional Medicine, and they have a find a practitioner link right there. And you can type in your your zip code or a city, uh, and be able to select within what distance you want to go, and you'll find the uh, tens of thousands of people who have some training in functional medicine. You can also find those specific individuals who are who are certified practitioners who've gone through all the training and have demonstrated their uh, their understanding of the operating system and how to apply. It. That's where I would go for the the best benefit, um, and so that's a that's available to anyone to be able to go on. The uh, Cleveland Clinic continues to see patients as well. Uh, there is a waiting list, but um, you know I, if there if there's someone who's interested, uh, that is a group that, uh, that takes insurance. It takes standard uh, healthcare insurance. We find it about 50-50. About half of the practitioners of functional medicine will take insurance. Half will be more of a, of a fee-for-service model um, because they take more time with the patients and, and that's generally not paid for by the insurance companies. Sure. And if, if we have listeners who are interested in learning more about functional medicine in terms of websites or books, are there, are there any in particular that you would recommend to people? Well, any of the books by Dr. Mark Hyman, um, his most uh, most recent book, which is um, uh, What Food Should I Eat, uh, is a great book as a starting point. He's got a number of other 11 New York Times bestsellers that really talk about the functional medicine model, and he's a, uh, a great ambassador for that. Um, looking at, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the book uh, by Dr. Uh, uh, Frank Lipman, L.I. P-M-A-N-N, um, that is around, from around Be Well, but I'm, I'm not remembering the name of it right off the top of my <laughs> head. I'm sorry. And uh, okay. and then also, you know, going to the websites and, and looking at uh, at functional medicine, many people find uh, me and, and learn a great deal just from YouTube videos that they, they watch, uh, typing in functional medicine and being able to see many of the different kinds of teachers talking about, you know, those aspects around detoxification, around nutrition, around, you know, looking at energy production, kind of see where's the concern type that in and functional medicine and, and you know listen to the YouTube videos and learn more about what functional medicine can do. 
And I think Dr. Hyman, if I'm remembering correctly, did a PBS special, public television special, um, focusing on fun. I don't know if that is generally available, but if people want to check their local PBS station websites, they could probably uh, hopefully find that um, as well. Uh, I also want to ask you about the immune system. I know. Oh my goodness! Population... I'm sorry. Uh, How to be well is Dr. Frank Lipman's book. Oh, How great! To be well. Thank you. And it's a great, great, it's a great simple tool. We, um, you know, have it. Um, all of our, we ask all our patients to be able to read it. It's got a, a wonderful kind of uh, mandala overview of the progressive steps, and I highly recommend it. Oh, terrific! Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I'm just curious because as our population ages, um, I'm sure our immune function becomes a question for a lot of people. And just in general, how would you recommend that we support our immune system? What is the most effective? What are some of the most effective things we can do to improve the immune system? I think the first thing really that I focus on is what's happening with the gut microbiome. You know, I mentioned it earlier, but our immune system is actually educated by the bacteria that are present in our gut. Uh, we start off and there's very little bacteria that's present inside us and it gets informed by the foods that we eat, by what we're exposed to, whether or not we're breast or bottle fed, you know, born in a hospital at home, born by cesarean section or vaginal birth. All those things will have an impact on the growth of the microbiome and that will have an effect on the education of our immune system. So the microbiome, because 70% of our immune system sits in the lining of our gut. And so that's the first place to begin. Now we can look at, at things like autoimmune disease, you know, which also is not only going to be affected by what's going on with the gut microbiome, but also the, uh, the permeability of the, of the gut lay, the barrier itself. Is it, is it open? Is it just letting everything through, or is it acting as a as a selective, a semi-permeable membrane where it lets in good things and keeps bad things out? So there's a crosstalk that's going on between the gut and the immune system, as well as the brain, all of the time, and those are those are the important factors. So we see in the other aspect of dealing with the immune system is the thing, the piece I talked about earlier, and that is about looking at sympathetic overdrive and what we're doing to be able to kind of force our adrenal glands to push, 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 uh, which actually decreases the ability of our immune system to do its job effectively. So the thing that makes a difference with the microbiome is the nutrition. More diversity in our nutrition, more diversity in the colors of our fruits and vegetables, the more diverse and the healthier our gut microbiome is. So it comes back to what I said earlier, looking at how we deal with stresses and sympathetic overdrive and how we deal with nutrition. Those are the two most essential factors. We had a chance to talk last month to Dr. Raphael Kelman, who I'm sure you know, mm-hmm. uh, sure. about his books. And um, mm-hmm. I must say I've been a little bit skeptical of the whole gluten scenario, uh, but I gained a few pounds over Christmas, and I thought, hey, I have nothing else to lose. I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Kelman. I'm going to give this a shot. And I think mm-hmm. what surprised me the most was not only losing those pounds, but I felt happier. I could not believe that result. That uh, mm-hmm. that was a real eye-opener for me. So. Yeah. And it's going to be different for different people. You know, some people will definitely, we, we see, you know, some data would say 20%. Um, I would say, you know, at least a third of the population is going to have some kind of, of gluten-related or wheat-related sensitivity that goes on, that they'll be affected by it. And it doesn't mean that you can never eat gluten again. It means that you want to work towards having balance within the system overall. So I'm not, you know, forever against gluten, um, but I do use it as a therapeutic intervention with most of my patients who come in because they're sick. And so I, I use that as part of my armamentarium and then and then move to reintroducing it and seeing how do you feel. Some people feel just fine when it's reintroduced. Other people feel terrible when it's reintroduced. And so there's your there's your decision. Yeah. I, I'm curious, what what are you most excited about, excited about in the medical field right now and about your work at the Institute for Functional Medicine? 
Well, the thing that excites me most is, the, is, as I've kind of alluded to, is talking about how do we work with groups of people, uh, both in an in a office setting with small groups like 10 people, as well as in community settings to be able to share, people, share with people these ideas of how to be able to use the tools of functional medicine and use these lifestyle changes uh, to support them and make a difference in their lives. And in doing that, looking at research that demonstrates that people who follow this approach have better outcomes. They feel better. And that is, to me, the seeds of how we can have an impact on this you know, tsunami of economic issues in our healthcare system. What a, that is a great way to end our discussion. I can't believe mm. how quickly this time has flown by. Thank you so much for being with us <laughs> this evening. You, really appreciate You're it. You're welcome. Well, I also want to let our listeners know that next month we have another guest who might be of particular interest. Uh, our guest will be Lynn Farrell, author of The Iodine Crisis, What You Don't Know About Iodine Can Wreck Your Life. Uh, thanks to the environmental pollutants, iodine deficiency has become a worldwide epidemic. And Lynn Farrell reveals how she and thousands of other patient activists changed their lives by researching and using iodine. Hope you can be with us for that show on April 2nd, Tuesday, April 2nd. Also want to invite you to uh, join us later on. We're going to have Dr. Bill Manahan with us uh, in July and Dr. Doug Fields with us in August, uh, who deals with brain health. Uh, and also, feel free to access our previous programs by Googling Edge Blog Talk Radio Learning Well Archives. In closing, I want to thank Dr. Patrick Hannaway and the uh, Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale. And if you enjoy the show, we hope you'll let at least one other person know about our conversations on learning well. So until our next time on April 2nd, I hope you can uh, hopefully stay warm and stay well. Good night. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.